0: Good day.
1: Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He has written well over 150 books, making him by far the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And today we are discussing his book, a History of the Second World War in 100 Maps, published by Chicago University Press. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, what is, uh, could we say, the thesis of the book be?
2: Right, well, what I wanted to do was to take 100 contemporary maps and to use them in order to approach World War Two and to not do it in terms of the what might be the standard rather plodding account of starting with... Um, German invasion of Poland and ending with the dropping of the atom bombs, but instead to organize them thematically. And in organizing them thematically include chapter introductions, which enabled me to discuss those particular types of mapping. So I got, after a general introduction, uh, which is important to the book, I've got seven um, particular chapters, geopolitics, strategic, operational, tactical, reportage, propaganda, retrospective. Now, obviously, for each of those, there's a degree of overlap. Obviously, geopolitics has a degree of overlap with strategic. I mean, that helps to explain the organization. But there are also, I've tried to make them distinctive, and I've tried to make the introductions, both individually and collectively, a major contribution to the history of cartography.
1: Why was, as you put it, quote, the production and use of maps in the Second World War was on a far larger scale than in the First World War, unquote. Well,
2: that's an excellent question. First of all, the geographical range of conflict was far, far greater. I mean, we use the term the First World War, and of course there was, as far as the Pacific is concerned, the Battle of Coronel off Chile in 1914. There were... Uh, Japanese seizure uh, and indeed Australasian seizure of German colonies but fundamentally nothing much happened around the Pacific at all and I think one could fairly say not much in the Indian Ocean either and the situation is totally and utterly different in World War II uh, due to Japan being a major competent, uh, competent in World War I it's just been a rather minor ally of the Allies um, this is a genuine global war. And then on top of that, we have um, sort of areas, spheres of warfare that already existed in World War I, but which were rather limited, for example, long-range bombing, submarine operations, uh, aircraft carriers. Um, they were all there in World War One, but uh, quite frankly, particularly aircraft carriers, only at a very minor scale whereas um, from the outset of World War II, uh, they were there um, and needed to be considered.
1: Were the maps employed in the Second World War qualitatively superior than those employed in the First World War?
2: That, again, is an interesting question. I mean, maybe I should try and write an essay comparing the two, which I haven't actually done. So that's a good uh, question. Um, yes and no. I mean, in the sense that the map of the um, front line on the Western Front in World War One were of very high quality, uh, using aerial reconnaissance and uh, and photography accordingly in a very intensive fashion and determined by the need to to plot very accurate fire plans for the artillery. That's very impressive. But I would argue that in World War Two, you have a greater range, Not just as I've already mentioned geographically, but also um, there is a more intensive desire to understand the economies of the various states. uh, That in part is linked to uh, long range bombing, of course, um, and also uh, there is the need to consider um whereas for example you might have tanks as you did have in World War 1 they weren't required to be um all terrain um vehicles to the extent that you see in World War 2 and on top of that in World War 2 you have the mapping of a lot of very difficult uh terrains um particularly New Guinea and uh, Burma and in many of these areas existing mapping was nurgatory. Aerial reconnaissance was very difficult because of low-level cloud, Um, and you are are having to, as it were, go from start, in relative terms, to finish, a map that you can hand to somebody which will enable them to plot and plan uh, movements in a time-space sequence, and obviously warfare is a time-space sequence, it's not just about space. Uh, spatial considerations, and that really requires a lot. Uh, I might mention one other thing. As you correctly say from the perspective of the new book network's listeners in the United States, it's published by the University of Chicago, but I ought to mention that in Britain it's published by the British Library.
1: Uh, Qualitatively, who produced the best maps, qua maps, in the Second World War?
2: I think qualitatively, qua maps, It would be the British and the Americans, which is not really surprising. They um, faced um, the largest and greatest challenges uh, in mapping terms because they were fighting world wars. Um, They made... Uh, the greatest use of their own maps, whereas, for example, the Germans, who had a very ad hoc practice often, uh, frequently um, used other peoples, which they then overprinted. Um, And I think it's fair to say that the... Uh, practices of mapping from before the war were much better. So the British, for example, who I would say, I mean, the British have many faults. I'm not just waving the Union Jack. The British have many faults. But I think in World War II, you get the great benefit of the empire. You already have the um, the survey of, in India, the autonomous um, map-making sectors there. You have the same based in Cairo. And, you know, a point that has been made both by the historian Niall Ferguson and by myself, um, is that, you know, people endlessly criticize the British Empire. It's worth bearing in mind that in the 20th century, when As it were, history could have gone into another direction with absolutely ghastly consequences if the Axis had won, uh, the Axis powers had won. The British Empire really played a key role in that important moment in world history, and it was a key role for the good. Um, The Americans also, very impressive uh, mapping, slightly different basis in the sense that their, as it were, their global coverage was not all that brilliant. Their maps of the Philippines, for example, weren't very good. America didn't have a pattern of global colonies. But they had extraordinary expertise within the United States, both homegrown and some of them Hitler's exports, in other words, people that had fled. Um, The mobilization of uh, geographers and others provided um, real talent and they rapidly structured a map-producing system that was excellent. And in particular, the Americans proved really good at the aeronautical perspective maps of understanding the world as an area that was a globe uh, linked by uh, aerial routes and opportunities.
1: The book shows us the map rooms of both uh, Franklin Roosevelt and uh, Winston Churchill. Did Hitler or Stalin have such a room? And if not, why not?
2: Well, Hitler liked being photographed with uh, with maps, um, but he was not particularly interested in geography. I think that's a very uh, a fair comment, and he always... Um, subordinated the Weltpolitik that you might associate with the naval staff, who did have a better understanding of spatial considerations, to a very European-centered, and one might even say East-Central European-centered perspective, which was his. Um, I think partly also it's a matter, and the same thing is true with Stalin, it's a matter of education and background. Churchill was a child of empire. As a young man, he'd been, of course, to the Northwest Frontier. He'd been to Sudan. He'd been to South Africa. He subsequently travelled enormously, including, obviously, to North America a lot. Uh, Roosevelt, with the uh, navalist background of uh, of his career, with his interest in geographers, people like Bowman, uh, he also had a strong sense of geography. To be frank it was not a lived experience for either Stalin or Hitler and of course the point about looking at a map is you have to understand it Um, and I'm not sure that one really can see that. I mean the biggest I would say strategic geopolitical failing of Stalin was simply not to realize the nature of the oceanic dimension of world history nor really to show much sign of caring about it. Hitler again the same sort of thing and I think this very much reflects a weakness not just of maps but of understanding how to use maps.
1: Did the German maps of the Soviet Union prior to launching Operation Barbarossa correctly address the issues of much greater scale and size of the Soviet Union?
2: Not really and of course classically combined with the Abwehr and other uh, analyses they got wrong the um scale of the soviet military um so i think it's fair to say that the germans didn't and also they as i mentioned earlier you have to build into a map and a time sequence as well as in the space sequence the germans didn't really adequately think through the strain that the wehrmacht would have uh, experienced um, as a result of operations as a result of the nature of the roads as a result of the uh, scale of opposition Um the road one is obviously very significant as we know one of the problems if you look at a map is a map can suggest that uh, terrain is readily crossable um whereas, as you will know, the 1941 had proved to be a very uh, wet and poor spring with a lot of ground water. Uh, there was um, uh, a lot of mud in the autumn. Uh, it, it was a, let alone before the onset of winter coming along, it was a bad year to campaign, and that really wasn't adequately Um, expressed in the maps they were using. One of the areas, incidentally, one of the areas in which geographical information is very different is that although the Germans did have some weather stations, the British and the Americans put much, much more effort into mapping weather um, than the Germans did. And of course, that was to be important in uh, um, post-World War II uh, weather mapping in peacetime, but also uh, in going, going forward into the Cold War.
1: did the germans get their hands on any um uh good soviet maps when they overran uh, the western portions of the soviet union
2: yes they captured quite significant map stores and as i discuss in the map, in my book uh, this led not surprisingly in the case of stalin uh, to his customary paranoia um, and to hiding maps and all the rest of it uh, found him a few more people to shoot um, but the um, problems for the Germans is that in acquiring these maps it might provide you with location but it didn't provide you with qualitative indexes of what one might call goings the British phrase goings in other words the ease crossing terrain um, and I think it's fair to say that, I mean, you know, there is always this tension in the German war effort in World War Two between a optimistic desire, the can-do optimism, we will do it, we will manage it, um, and the reality of the multiple problems. Now, those terms can be used, you can refer to them as frictions, as if they're things that can be as it were built into the model as a sort of just a percentage uh, inadequacy i think we're talking about much more systemic problems affecting the germans and as you know we had the uh, i had the privilege of discussing with you the world war ii as a whole and i was fairly critical of german war making and uh, i've seen nothing to to lead me to to suggest otherwise and Um, One of the great strengths of your country's scholarship on World War II over the last um, three decades has been the excellent scholarship on the Eastern Front. And I think what American scholarship on the Eastern Front using both German and Soviet archives has really brought out uh, is the multiple deficiencies, sorry, are the multiple deficiencies uh, of German war making and I would, one of the things I was trying to do in my book was not just have my book as a standalone and a standalone also separately that would be of particular interest to map collectors, map readers, whatever, but also to actually contribute to World War II studies. And you're correct. I notice you've been pushing in your questions. You're correct that there is there, um, in the text and in the captions, a strong um, you know argument in favor of the inadequacies of, of the Germans. And I think here we've got a perspective that it's part of a broader failure of German intelligence. I mean, you know, it's um, by intelligence, I mean capital I intelligence. I don't mean that they were stupid people per se, but I mean that institutionally they failed to match the skill of their opponents um, in assessing information. And in the case of mapping, weather, other factors, in deciding what information to acquire and display so that you could then assess it.
1: How good or not was the quality of Japanese maps employed during the war?
2: Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I have tried to write about that a little bit. Uh, not particularly brilliant. Um, the, um, you know, there are some that aren't bad, but not particularly brilliant. The Japanese have a number of problems. Um, first of all, um, they, their prior mapping of areas that they advanced into was limited in part because uh, we're talking about, if you're, for example, the Japanese um, operating in Guadalcanal, um, formidable distances. So these, are, these areas had not been open to aerial reconnaissance before the war. And the existing mapping, as we've already mentioned, uh, in these areas, or for example, New Guinea or Burma, was inadequate. So it wasn't as though they could seize or otherwise acquire map stores that they could then use. So I think that is an important point. Then secondly, once they take over areas, uh, particularly if they're there for a period of time, then they tend to produce um, a certain degree of cartographic information. But areas where they're not there for much time, they don't do an an enormous amount of that. And um, even when they're there for some time, the Japanese lack a lot of what is necessary. So aerial reconnaissance is poor. Um, In the absence of that, um, there's a limit to what they can display of areas that they wish to advance into. For example, in the 1944 operations on the um, India-Burma frontier, in terms of hanging on to positions that are under attack, shall we say Okinawa or Iwo Jima, actually what you don't need is a map. What you need is an understanding of the particular terrain and topography of the immediate uh, area you're in. Um, And I think it's fair to say that once the Japanese were pushed onto a defensive um uh, sort of uh, stance that that was what was to the fore
1: uh which country produced because there's a section of the book about this the best propaganda maps
2: well that's a fa- there is a section and um uh, that 's a fascinating question because in a way you 're producing propaganda maps for three separate audiences. For the domestic audience, for an international audience of hostiles, and for an international audience of neutrals. So an example of the latter would be uh, British and German maps made open to the American market in 39, 40, 41, for example. Um, Well, that's very interesting. Um, I think that the German maps did rather depend upon you believing in the Third Reich. I don't think there was as it were, uh, much of an attempt to appeal to an impartial scepticism there. Um, And I think that that, therefore, had its big problems. I mean, there are some maps that make good points. I've, I've got in the book those snail maps, which the Germans drop on Allied soldiers in Italy, pointing out the length of the time it's taking the Allies to advance up the Italian peninsula. And arguing that these display um, the failure of uh, Allied strategy, and I actually I think that's a rather good, those are rather good, um, very crude but good. Though there's no sign that they led to disaffection on the part of the troops, still less desertion in any quantities. Um, I think the what we know about German pu- public opinion um, is that ge- German public opinion to the end um, c- was more enthusiastic about the Third Reich on the part of many people than after the war they cared to remember. But I would not put that down specifically to maps um, at all because, of course, maps for the Germans portrayed at that stage of the war them doing badly. Um, Maps, when you're doing well, are attractive, but if you're sitting there in a German cinema smoking away in 1940, it's the film footage of the soldiers of the Wehrmacht um, uh, marching down the Champs Elysees, which is much more impressive, if you see what I mean. So, um, and interestingly enough, there is that dimension of maps. Maps, as part of newsreels, are quite significant, um, but obviously they work juxtaposed with the rest of the newsreel. I think actually the Americans were the best, and I think I, um, you know, I have um, some maps by Richard Eads Harrison and those marvelous maps that are produced in Time Magazine in particular, and Life, um, and the other periodicals, uh, Owen's maps in the Los Angeles Times. You know, there are a number of these, and I think they have the enormous skill of bringing home to Americans the interaction between the Pacific and their own country, the Atlantic fields of operations in their own country, uh, providing these astonishing aeronautical views, uh, innovative perspectives and projections, um, and also indicating this notion of the routes to the routes to Berlin, the routes to Tokyo. Incidentally, that title is used, though not with grand maps, in the tremendous uh, museum of World War II um, in New Orleans. And I think those are, from my mind, the best maps for the public to come out of World War Two. Now, I would say they're equally reportage as, as propaganda. I mean, they're not... Um, you know there's fairly clear cut which side of the good is and which side of the bad is but it is the reportage side that is very very strong in them
1: what ultimately do maps tell us about the second world war
2: i think maps tell us uh, ultimately about the second world war its range um the sophistication necessary in order to win it uh they tell us a lot about um the way in which advanced societies in the mid-20th century were able to rise to the challenge of using their intellect and production capabilities in order to take part in a process of war in which thought uh, was a key component, an element of it. Um, I think in particular they also show the tremendous skill of uh, british and american society and encouraging innovation i mean a lot of the cartography that the british and the americans produce is innovative and it's based on a classic notion in which the americans are very good but the british are also very good which is if something doesn't work change it and try something else and i think that's quite important I, i also tried with these maps to show the um actual i mean beauty might sound the wrong word when we're describing a war but the visual interest of the maps and as you may know um i've done a number of uh map books i mean i've done one about war at, on at land all the way through one on war at sea all the way through one on w- war and fortification all the way through and obviously i i edited as well a, a history of the world and a historical atlas of the world and I think that um, in terms of being able to suggest to the observer connections uh, to, 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 and to um, explain to them the spatial context within which they are operating and thinking, I think maps have no equal.
1: If you wanted people to take one single important thing away from this book, what would it be? that looking at maps of the period
2: provides us with an, in, an important tool to understanding many aspects of World War II.
1: On that observation, of which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, for Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black.